Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I had so much fun coming up with the things like, you've smelled the breath of a hippopotamus. <laughs> <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 157. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, I want to share a very relevant email, more about that in a minute, that popped up in my inbox and made me giggle this week. Katie wrote, and I'm just a few pages in to We Were the Lucky Ones by Georgia Hunter, and I spotted a reference to Rilke poems. I wouldn't have had a clue about this name if I didn't follow your blog or podcast. When I looked it up to confirm it was who I thought, I realized Rilke was a man. I thought woman because of Maria, haha, always learning something new. Readers, every week on the show, if you listen to the end, we share a famous quote from Reiner Maria Rilke, a German name. He says, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. This has meant so much to me and so many of you that when Eric Zimmer came on in episode 139, we talked about Rilke as the patron saint of what should I read next? If you want to go listen, and I hope you do, because Eric chose Letters to a Young Poet by Rilke as one of his favorites, you can find that episode number 139. It's called Snooping other people's bookshelves and the patron saint of what should I read next. Quick reminder, we are still gathering recommendation requests for our upcoming holiday gift guide. Go to modernmrsdarcy.com slash talk to tell us about the loved one you want to find a book for or email our producer Brenna at B-R-E-N-N-A at modernmrsdarcy.com with your loved one's favorites, least favorites, and any important details you have. Gift season is right around the corner, so don't wait. If you're in the Midwest, I hope I get to meet you in person this weekend. I'll be at Cincinnati's first podcast festival Friday night. You do not need to be a podcaster to attend my live show I'm doing with Sarah and Beth of Pantsuit Politics. Get all the details you need, including ticket info, at annbogle.com slash events. That's Ann with an E. B is in books, O-G-E-L dot com slash events. When today's guest, Georgia Hunter, started getting curious about her family history, a few questions put to the right relatives uncovered something she didn't expect, a sweeping multi-generational drama just begging to be written down. She decided she was the one to do it, and that story became We Were the Lucky Ones, a historical fiction novel I've talked about here on the podcast with Clara Brighton-Moser in episode 131, and in What Should I Read Next Live from the Novel Neighbor, that's episode 76, it's called Book People Are the Best People 
life. I am so pleased to have Georgia on the show to talk a little more about how she turned her family's difficult story into a book that has brought joy and hope to so many readers. Let's get to it. Georgia, welcome to the show. Hi, Anne. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. Now, many of us know you as the author of We Were the Lucky Ones, which actually we've talked about on the show. Listeners, if you go way back, I recommended that in episode 76 of What Should I Read Next? And today we do get to talk about how that book came into being because the little bit I've heard of the story is absolutely fascinating. I imagine before you were a writer, you must have been quite a reader. Would you tell me about that? Yeah, I came from a family of readers. My father is actually a writer as well. So I grew up actually to the sound of his typewriter. And I was three or four, he was writing his first novel. So he had one of those old school typewriters. I'd hear the bam, 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 bam coming from upstairs. (laughs) I love that you remember that. Oh, yeah. Um, It sounded a little like a machine gun. So people who didn't know what was going on, well, you're a little disconcerted. But his book was a sci-fi novel called Softly Walks the Beast, which I pretended to read as soon as it came out. And then I wrote my own first novel at age five called Charlie Walks the Beast. (laughs) I love to read. I'm, I'm a horse person and read all the horse books you can think of as a young girl. Got swept away in those. I had a favorite called A Pony Called Lightning, which I still have my original edition. And I just read it with my six-year-old, which was really special. I've just been, I guess, surrounded by readers and writers. And I feel very lucky for that. Absolutely. Have you read any Laura Hillenbrand? (gasps) Yes, I have. Unbroken and Seabiscuit. Yes, I was just thinking that your experience sounds so much like her finding Seabiscuit, or there's a book about Seabiscuit, it's not called that, that she found at a yard sale when she was eight years old. And I might be missing a few of the details, but the key elements here are the same part of the story. I just thought it was so interesting that you're both writers and were so impacted by works you came to very, very early. Yeah, she was a huge inspiration. I mean, I loved Seabiscuit, obviously, for the, the storytelling and the horse aspect. And then with Unbroken... That was obviously nonfiction based on this true story, and she told it so well. And I remember reading about how intense her research was, and I think difficult for her because she had an illness, right? Where she would, I mean, I think it took months and months and months for her to gather her research and meet with him. And her nonfiction book read like a novel. And I remember being really inspired by that as I was starting to get interested in my own family history, thinking, gosh, I could write this story and have it read like a novel, like something anybody might want to pick up and kind of get lost in. So she was definitely one of my early inspirations. I would imagine you all could have quite the mutual admiration society going. (laughs) Gosh, I'd love to meet her someday. Was there ever a question for you? Well, since you did mention your book, was there ever a question for you of what genre you would write? We were the lucky ones in. Good question, because originally I went into it thinking it would be nonfiction, narrative nonfiction, which is, you know, what Unbroken was. And I did a ton of research. The whole process from start to finish for me took nine years. (laughs) And it was interesting for me because as the research unfolded, the bones of the story were there. Like I didn't have to create plot or storylines. It took a long time because I discovered as I went along, there weren't just one or two stories to tell. There were like six or seven stories to tell. So the the family 
Polish Jews, they scatter at the start of the war and they each had their own individual paths to survival. But I'm a research nerd and a perfectionist and I just refuse to leave any stone unturned. And so in the end, I felt like, okay, well, I've done the research. I should write this as nonfiction. And I actually went as far as writing a proposal and thinking about pitching it that way. Because as you know, in the publishing world, it's two very different paths you take for fiction and nonfiction. But then as I got further down the road into actually writing the manuscript, that's when I realized if I want this book to read like a novel, and I didn't have the chance, unfortunately, to sit down one-on-one with these survivors. There was one survivor, Felicia, who I was able to meet with. Otherwise, it was all second-generation survivors. And I just realized I wanted dialogue. I wanted to put thoughts in their minds and in their hearts and people to really like step inside and into the shoes of these family members. And I didn't feel comfortable creating those conversations and thoughts and fears and all that emotional, really human stuff that wasn't passed down to me firsthand. I didn't feel comfortable calling that nonfiction. So in the end, that's why I decided to take it the fiction route. So the historical fiction route. And I'm glad that I did because it allowed me a little bit more creative license to create, like I said, that human element, that those very colorful details that were not passed down in the bones of the story. I figured out who was where and when, but it's those, those little details, even when it comes to things like setting that I had to do a lot of research for, but those are the details that really bring a story to life, right? That make you feel like you're there. Right, right. You said the whole process took you nine years, but <laughs> yeah. what happened at year zero that set you off down that road? Like, you have to even back up a little bit further. Back to my childhood, I grew up a mile from my grandfather. So this is my my mom's side of the family. We grew up in Massachusetts in a little tiny town called Plainville, just as big and as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> and my grandparents, Eddie, who's Addie in the book, and Caroline, who you also meet in the book, lived just up the street. And we spent a lot of time together, family dinners and birthdays and travel. But interestingly, I never knew about my grandfather's Holocaust era past. I don't think it was a big secret that he kept for me. I think it was just a piece of him that he had chosen to put behind him, as many survivors have. And uh, he was a very forward-looking guy, very ambitious guy, and it just wasn't a part of our conversation. He also passed away when I was 14 and was very sick by the time I was around 11. So I was not at that age yet where I was really fascinated and interested in my family history and where I came from. So it wasn't actually until a year after he had died and I was 15 that a high school English teacher assigned our class a project he called an iSearch where we were tasked with interviewing a relative to find out a little bit about ourselves, you know, our hist- our family histories and in turn about ourselves. And I sat down with my grandmother, Caroline, and it was then that I discovered this piece of his past that my grandfather was, I didn't even realize he was from Poland. I never heard an accent. I knew we had relatives, some in the States and some in Europe, but it was that unclear to me. So I discovered that he was Polish, that he was Jewish, that he came from this big family of Holocaust survivors. And boom, all of a sudden, my perspective on him and also on myself and who I am, where I came from changed. And it was a it was a crazy discovery. I wasn't resentful or anything about it. I was more 
fascinated and curious. And my grandmother at the time was able to share a little bit of a lot about him, his story, but not so much about the rest of the family, the other four siblings. He was one of five. So really, it was then when I was 15 that the idea was seeded. And then five or six years later, my mother hosted a family reunion at our home invited all of her cousins on her father's side. She's one of 10. They all came. They came in from Brazil and France and Israel and all over the States. And I was 21 at the time, just had graduated from college and wandered outside one night where that generation, my mom's generation was sitting around our picnic table telling stories. And I realized, oh, they're talking about my grandfather. And I leaned in and started listening. And that's when the greater pieces of the greater Kirk family story came to light for me. And I had this wide-eyed moment of, wow, how have I never heard these stories before? Like, you know, one of the cousins that was sitting at the table, Jose, talked about how he was born in Siberia in a gulag. And yet he didn't know why his parents had been sent there. He didn't even know his birthday. The only thing he knew about when he was born was that it was in the middle of the Siberian winter. And his mother said, as a baby, he would wake up and it was so cold that his little eyes would be frozen shut and she would use her breast milk to coax them open. Can we imagine hearing stories like this as a 21-year-old? You know, I heard about hike over the Austrian Alps. I heard about a a mother-daughter escape from the ghetto and false IDs. And the stories went on and on. And that was probably the next step when the idea was really seeded of, okay, these stories are unbelievable in my mind. And I started thinking about writing them down. It would take me many, many years before I got the courage to do so. But those two events, the high school English assignment and the family reunion were very pivotal in the birth of this project, if you will. While you were, whether consciously or not, gathering your confidence to actually tell this story, what did you choose to do professionally? I studied psychology at University of Virginia. I loved the field and fascinated, still am, by human nature and connection. And after school, after a brief stint in Australia, I was there for the 2000 Olympics with some girlfriends, which was a blast. I went into communications and kind of the marketing and communications field and then kind of transitioned to branding and marketing where I was a strategist. I had a business card at one place called Thinker, (laughs) Thinker and Strategist. (laughs) I thought that was pretty cool. I worked in Atlanta and I worked in Seattle in that kind of middleman role between the creative team and our clients. So we would do everything from, you know, a new logo or brochure, branding and marketing campaigns. And one day at my Seattle job, we hired a copywriter, you know, to work on the materials. She sat right next to me. I remember kind of looking over my shoulder and being like, wait, I really like to write. I'd always loved to write as a hobby and you know, had written a couple articles for newspapers and journals and things like that. But I looked and realized, oh, you can do this for a living. Like you can, like you can actually use a marketing background and write. <laughs> and so I decided to branch off on my own and become a freelance copywriter. And I still do it today. And I focus on the travel industry, specifically the adventure travel industry. So these outfitters that take clients out in small groups, anywhere from on an African safari to the rainforest of Costa Rica because I love to travel as well. I felt like that would be a dream job and sure enough it is. <laughs> so that's what I do now. I kind of balance that with my book work, with my family time. Would you tell me about one of your favorite pieces you've done as a travel writer? 
one of my earliest pieces that I did was for a magazine called Travel Girl Magazine, and it had just started up. I was working in Atlanta, and I think the woman who founded it, she offered a class in travel writing, and I jumped on it and took it, and then she asked us to make submissions, so I think she was somewhat using us to get content, <laughs> <laughs> And um, but hey, I took it, and um, I wrote this piece, and it's it's like a one-pager with bullets, so it's very short and simple, but it's, you know you're a travel girl if. I had so much fun coming up with the things like, you've smelled the breath of a hippopotamus. Um, (laughs) I just kind of look back on my own travels and made this crazy long list and she picked 10 of them and published it. That's not the background I expected. (laughs) What did you expect? I'm curious. Um, MFA. Something more buttoned up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I guess it's not very traditional. It's more interesting that way, Georgia. So while you're doing this travel writing, at what point did you realize the time is now? I can't put it off any longer. I have the story to tell. Let's buckle down and get to work. Yeah, that was in 2008. I think the idea had just percolated long enough. I couldn't ignore it any longer. I was newly married and my husband, my best friend, my biggest supporter gave me the double thumbs up because I knew it was going to take a lot of travel. It was going to be expensive for one. It was going to take a lot of travel. Granted, I was going to places where I would be staying with family members, but those places were Brazil and France and all over. So it was going to be a, um, a beast of a project. And uh, he, he said, go for it. We should, you have to do this. And I remember seeding the idea with my mother as well, hesitantly, to be honest, because I kind of expected her to say, oh, okay, yeah, but don't quit your job. Like, let's just, let's just be real here. This maybe could be a pet project. She was so excited when I told her that I wanted to do this. She ran and she found a binder that she had put together years ago when my grandfather died of condolence letters and photos and things like that. And she said, you know, I always had the same idea. And this is as far as I got. And she handed it to me and it was somewhat of a passing of the baton. And to be honest, she's been my wing woman throughout. She's been with me on every stop of my book tours and she's read every page of the manuscript over and over and over again and worked on edits. So um, I had the support. So 2008, I set off and I went to Paris for my first interview with the relative I mentioned, Felicia, my great aunt. She was one year old at the start of the war. So sadly, her childhood was consumed with not knowing anything else but being hunted, being in hiding, fighting for her life. And her memories were just unbelievable. I just couldn't believe the details she was able to remember from such a very young age. I was so grateful for her sharing them with me. And then from then, it was on to Brazil and California, Miami, Vermont, all over to interview the second generation cousins, the second generation survivors. And from that point, it was nine years. Yeah, before it was published. Yeah. So, you know, I'd say the research itself, probably five years. And then I couldn't help but start writing. I'd get back from a trip and just I'd learn about a scene, lodge itself in my heart, and I'd have to just get it down on paper. Um, When I finally set off to write the book as a one piece, one entity, I had like 20 one-off chapter or scenes written and saved. And I realized then, okay, the research is pretty much done. I now need to figure out a way to make sense of this, not only for myself, but for readers. Because it was a lot, it's a lot. It's a big story. It covers a lot of breadth. It follows a lot of people. So I first formulated a timeline 
color-coded it by sibling as this beautiful rainbow of a document that really helped for me to get it organized. And then back to your question about fiction or nonfiction, when I was thinking of pitching it as nonfiction, you know, in your proposal writing, it requires an outline with chapter summaries, which was probably the best thing I ever did was to create an outline with chapter summaries, which involved a lot of sticky notes, like a Tetris game of sticky notes on the wall, on the wall. Of, <laughs> <laughs> now it's written chronologically, but there were a few places where like, I wasn't sure exactly of a date or, you know, and I'd have to think. And also because the chapters are told from different perspectives, like I have told a chapter from each of the perspectives, one in a, one in a row. And then, oh, but I haven't heard from Mila and six chapters. I need to figure out how to work her in. What would Mm -hmm. she have been doing? Where would she have been? That piece of it took maybe a year or two as well. And then once the agent came in, that was very exciting. And I just didn't have any clue, but sure enough, there would be another year of editing with her. And then the publisher came in and there were another two years of editing before it landed on bookshelves. What has it been like to have other readers emotionally responding to the story of your family? Oh, it's been incredible. I have to say I'm blown away by the response and by the number of readers who reach out. Like, I mean, you're, this is your world and you communicate with readers every day. But for, for me, I've a million books that I love. I've never written to an author and now I do. Now I, I reach out and I send a little email and I just say, hey, this is what I loved about your book because every time someone sends me a note, it just means so much. And it's, it's so interesting, the different pieces that resonate. So one might say, well, I just could not get enough of Mila and Felicia, the mother-daughter storyline. I'm just, I'm a new mom and I just couldn't imagine what it was like for Mila to go through that. And I could relate to so much. And one might say, oh, well, my grandfather, there is also a survivor from Poland. I mean, I've had very specific, I mean, I've had people say, oh my gosh, my family's also from Rodham and they know your family. So I've gotten down to that level of connection to thank you for sharing a story of hope and perseverance in today's world. We needed that. I needed that human connection. I needed the, I needed a family to root for. So it's just been overwhelming and so, uh, I mean, terrifying at first, of course, to know that it was my family story in the hands of strangers. But I felt really good about how much time and effort and you know work and heart and soul that I had put into it. That in a sense, I think I was in a little bit of a better place than maybe somebody who's writing pure fiction because I felt like I. I had done everything I could, you know, to bring this family story to life, to give it justice. So I didn't really know what, how people would respond, but I felt good about it inside. And that was a nice place to be when I put it out there. And probably the scariest audience when I first sent the galleys out was my family. Oh, <laughs> I can was, imagine. Yeah, that was really, they're, they're the ones I cared about the most, obviously. So I had to really hold my breath waiting for their feedback. And then they came back with it. And what did and they then say? They came back and they thankfully they were so supportive incredibly moved and I was really really impressed by the cousins of my generation third generation who sent these heartfelt emails or would call you know Skype with tears running down their faces and thank you for bringing this story to life and teach you know I can pass it on to my kids and their kids and so it's been nothing but positive thankfully How has writing a book about your family changed, not just your professional life, because we can imagine, but how has it changed the way you understand 
your family, whether you define that um, real up close and personal in your household or, you know, your family across the globe that you Skype and email with about this book? That's a good question. I definitely feel like the process, I've, just, I've spent so much time with family members over the last decade, you know, whether I would visiting them and spending a week in their homes and retracing family footsteps through Rio or Paris or going to the National Archives and getting help with translations. First of all, I feel like it's brought me very much closer to my family, to especially to that second generation of cousins who I wouldn't have had the chance to get to know as well. Through them, I've also gotten to know the ancestors that I didn't have a chance to meet, those five siblings. So of course, I knew my grandmother, my grandfather, and I had a chance to meet one sister, but I feel like through the time spent interviewing their children, I've come to know them in a way that feels very grounding in a sense, like in understanding not just who they are, but what they went through to be here. It roots you in a way. And not only that, I think because of the specific story that my family has to tell, it's helped me, (laughs) it sounds a little cliched, but make every moment matter and to appreciate so much the luxuries that we have today, not only knowing where my kids, my family, my parents, my aunts and uncles are at all times, we're a constant text message away, right? So coming from a family during World War II who was scattered, who had no way of reaching each other. My grandfather lost complete touch with his family. Once he made it to Brazil, they were stuck in Europe. He had no idea if he would see them again. I can't even imagine what that feels like. Think of all the things we have to be grateful for. And yes, the kids are melting down. And no, there's no dinner on the table yet because nobody has the energy. Um, But we're all here together under one roof and we're safe. (laughs) It's really all that matters. And the other thing I think it's been really interesting for me is it's taught me a lot about why I am the way I am. (laughs) Understanding my grandfather and my, my great aunts and uncles, understanding their story You know, understanding the Jewish piece of my heritage, obviously that's been very emotional and grounding as well, but more so it's the traits that have been passed down, like this sense of there is no challenge that we will back down from. You know, if you can put a hurdle in front of us and we will find a way around it, over it. We, you know, never say no. We like to say yes. We're a family that's very stubborn. (laughs) And I see these traits in myself and in my kids and I'm like, okay. And it's just nice to know, like, okay, I I get it. get where they come from. I, and it's really cool to see, even though my grandfather didn't pass his specific story down, he did pass those, those traits down. And that is special to be able to recognize that. Georgia, we've talked all about the book without talking about the book. Would you give listeners an idea of what story they're diving into when they do pick up? We were the lucky ones. Absolutely. So we were the lucky ones tracks my grandfather, Addie, who you meet in chapter one, and his four siblings as they scatter at the start of the Second World War. They're a family of Polish Jews, and they're on a twofold mission, first to survive and second to reunite. It's a book that will take you across continents, (laughs) to the beaches of Brazil, to the Siberian Gulag, to the Austrian Alps, throughout Poland. It spans basically the length of the Second World War. And in a sea of, you know, World War II Holocaust historical fiction, I feel like it offers a story of hope, 
of courage, of perseverance, and I hope of love. I mean, that was what I tried to infuse the most into it because this is a family that refused to ever give up hope that they would see each other again. So that in a nutshell, I know sometimes it's hard for people to pick up another Holocaust novel, but I try to tell readers that it's an uplifting story in the end. I appreciate that. I've heard other readers comment on how there are many wonderful World War II historical fiction novels that have been published in the last uh, 20, especially last 10 years. And I've heard other authors say that one of the reasons for the frequency right now is that everyone has collectively realized that the last generation of people who lived through it, who remember, who can tell their story, who can serve as original sources are dying and the time is now. And I've also heard readers say how there's something very powerful in the contrast between these ugly wars and the beautiful stories of life and love and hope and humanity. And thank you for sharing your story. Oh, you put that so beautifully. Yeah, thank you. And I, I that's exactly what I tried to do. Put the very, very human lens on a period in history that was not only dark, but almost unfathomable. You know, you learn about the statistics of the Holocaust and World War II, and it's really hard to wrap your mind around it. But, and that's why I love some of these, so many of these novels that have been written. I love them for that exact reason, because they give you a way to relate. And in that sense, it becomes more meaningful and more memorable. Georgia, it's so fun to have you on, not just because I really enjoyed We Were the Lucky Ones, and I was so curious about your personal story behind writing it, but also something I really enjoy, and you listen to the show, you know our listeners do too, is hearing what the writers we like to read enjoy reading. Yes. That does does make sense, right? I think I could diagram that sentence. (laughs) So you know what we do here. I'd love to hear about your reading life. You don't just read World War II histories and historical novels all the time. You're a real individual who has a great many books you love, and I'm so excited to hear about them. Oh, good. Yeah, I know. I can't wait to talk about them, too. Okay, so you know how this works. You get to tell me three books you love, one you don't, and what you've been reading, and we'll talk about what you should read next. I can't wait to hear what you have to recommend. So yes, to start it off, and a few of these are in the historical fiction genre because, and World War II specifically, because I have been quite immersed in in that genre, as you can imagine, in my research, and I do love it as a reader. I'm in a couple of book clubs, that's what we gravitate towards, and I think a lot of people do. So the first book that I always stands out in my mind that I loved is City of Thieves by David Benioff. So most people know him for things like Game of Thrones and Wolverine, but this book I picked up word of mouth from a friend. There are two things about it that I'll say. Um, It's a story of a young boy who you meet in the beginning who's interviewing his grandfather to learn the story of how he survived the Holocaust. So his grandfather's name is Lev. He's in Russia. Uh, You meet him as a young teenager. Uh, He gets arrested and thrown in jail, and he's told by this prominent Soviet colonel that he can avoid execution if he can go find a dozen eggs for his daughter's wedding, which is virtually impossible. Nothing's, there's siege going on, nothing's been allowed in or out of the city, but yet Lev and his new buddy go off on this mission to collect these eggs. And it's this real coming-of-age story it reads like a film. So I think that's Benioff's strength. It reads, it just unfolds so visually before you, you'll read it in like a day. And it has that perfect balance of thrilling and terrifying 
and also funny because these are kids, they're boys. So I just loved it. It was such an easy, quick read. Even if you're not into history, you'll like it. When I remembered the amazing premise, my brain was fixated on the dozen eggs because, (laughs) I mean, what an amazing setup. But I forgot about the grandfather. That's incredible for you. Okay. So it's interesting because I assumed that it was... David Benioff's grandfather, because in the intro, he calls himself Davy. He's interviewing his grandfather, and I know David's Jewish. And for a long time, I told people it was David's grandfather's story, but actually, it's not. (laughs) But that said, it really did inspire me. And there's a piece in the intro where David's talking about the young narrator interviewing his grandfather and asking for all these details. Well, what were you wearing? And what was the weather like? And were the streets cobblestone? You know, all these detailed questions. And his grandfather figure leans over and turns the tape recorder off and says, David, you're a writer. Make it up. (laughs) I don't remember these things. And that was also kind of an eye-opener for me, too. And I was thinking, oh, well, yeah, maybe I don't have to have every single detail researched. Maybe some of those I can make up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that I read a long time ago, but uh, recommend it to everybody. So it must have really stuck with you. Definitely. And another one that really stuck with me, and this is based on the author's family history, a novel called The Invisible Bridge by Julie Oranger. It's the opposite in weightiness. Like, I think City of Thieves is a couple hundred pages. This one's several hundred pages. It's a thick beast of a novel, and it is so beautiful. So it's based on Julie's grandfather's Holocaust survival story. He's a Hungarian Jew. You meet him in Paris before the war, which is my story also opens in Paris. She has infused her grandfather's story with so much love. Um, it's about his, you know, his family this sort of shattered and then remade. I think I was struck most by the love and the tenderness, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, set against this backdrop of death and destruction and darkness and all that was going on around them. To me, it read like poetry. I just thought it was so beautiful. And another one that I loved, which is completely, talk about left turn. I read this when I was living in Seattle, and it's Where'd You Go, Bernadette by Maria Semple. It provided incredible comedic relief from all the World War II I was reading. And I thought she just nailed the description of Seattle, which if you lived in Seattle, you might not think was funny. But because I'm not from Seattle, she I think she describes it at one point. She's like allergic to the city. Her husband works for Microsoft. Everybody's got like chickens in their backyard and they're super, super eco-conscious and all the sort of little jabs that she made, which probably offended a lot of people. I just thought were so spot on and so funny. And she just did such a good job of depicting the city. And I just thought it was really refreshingly different. Like it was a book that was, it's written in all these different formats and emails and letters and FBI documents. And it's a real page turner is a lot of suspense. So that's one that has stayed with me as well. Personal connection, suspense, (laughs) change of pace. Funny. Laugh out loud funny. Okay. Were you living in Seattle when you read it? Yes, that's exactly why I think I loved it so much. I was a newcomer that hadn't been there very long. And I thought it was just, I was like, oh, yes, somebody else kind of has a similar impression. I love, don't get me wrong. I love, love, love Seattle. But there are certain things about the city that you just kind of have to laugh about. 
(laughs) And she helped you do it. Yes, exactly. Okay. Speaking of change of pace, tell me about a book that wasn't for you. This book is like number one bestseller in New York Times. And I loved the writing, The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. I am in awe of her craft and I couldn't put the book down. I didn't dislike the book for the fact that it didn't keep my attention. I like tore through it. But I think my personal issue with it is that I just have a hard time with unreliable narrators. I know a lot lot of people love that and kind of the mystery around it. But for me, maybe I'm just more traditional and straightforward in that way. But I love to cheer for a protagonist. I love an underdog, someone kind of up against all odds that you just really, really, really want to root for. And so for me, having that, I I just kind of cringed my way through it. I had this icky feeling like, oh, oh, can I try? I don't know if I could trust her. And I had recommended it to my book club. And then I felt kind of guilty because <laughs> that one left me a little bit regretful, but not for her writing. I could never say a word about her, her ability as a writer, because she is extremely talented on that front. And so many people loved the book, obviously. So that one just didn't happen to be for me. What are you reading right now? Educated by Tara Westover. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of a, a memoir. So different for me. A I, different kind of family story. A different kind of family story. But talk about an underdog. Talk about somebody up against all odds. Holy smokes. Brought up in this survivalist family in Idaho, in the mountains of Idaho. She's kept out of school and just like another coming of age. Um, but here's a perfect example of this young, indomitable spirit who... I'm just, I'm halfway through, so I haven't finished it, but what she's up against, and granted, she doesn't know anything else yet, she never pities herself. She never complains. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It helps certainly put your own life in perspective, your own quote unquote challenges <laughs> in perspective and families too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I recently read Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine, which I adored by Gail Honeyman. She was just told from this perfectly imperfect narrator's perspective and Gail just nails her voice. You just get completely lost in this character, um, completely sucked into her story. She's wacky. She's charming. It's There's heartbreak. There's humor. It's a story of friendship and overcoming fear. And again, back to that human connection, which I think we all crave now more than ever. So it's that was one that I took with me on my book tour, actually, because I was so immersed in Holocaust. <laughs> I wanted something totally different to, to read as I went to bed every night and just loved it. Georgia, is there anything you want to be different in your reading life right now? (laughs) Time. (laughs) (laughs) I I always say that the definition of a vacation is one where I have time to read. You know, when you're, you know, you go to the beach with kids and you put your book in the bag and you don't open it for the duration of the week, whatever. (laughs) It's, it's, it seems there is never enough time in the day to read. Oh, so I don't know if this gives you hope or if this is just mean, but since I don't have a one-year-old who's trying to, you know, plunge into the deep end of the swimming pool yes. on vacation now, like I read a book a day the last time really? I was at the beach. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. How old is your youngest? Eight. So I got a few more years. <laughs> in our family, the age of the youngest child has made such a huge difference in whether you're tied down by nap time and if it really is safe to camp out by the deep end of the pool. So I wish you well. There is hope. When the day comes that I've got extra few hours, even that's all I've been asking for, I, uh, to read a day, I will be in heaven. And I'll put that time turner in the mail right now. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Have you read um, Sweet Frances by Irene Nemirovsky? I have it on my shelf. 
and I'm dying to read it. You've, I'm assuming you have. Do you recommend it? Well, it's the story behind it that that really makes me think. Oh, Georgia. Uh, do you, I mean, do you know the backstory of how this came to be published? It, did she pass away and somebody published it for her? Or am I thinking of a different book? No, you're not thinking of a different book. So okay. um, Nemirovsky was a novelist during the war, um, you know, as the Nazis moved across Europe as a Jew, her life was in grave dan- danger and she was eventually captured and eventually died in Auschwitz. But in the meantime, she wanted to write the story of what it was like to experience the war. And she wanted to do this not by telling the story of the war, but to really show how it affected her characters and the story is theirs. And of course the war is ever present, but it's not about them. It's about daily domestic lives and loves and how they were affected by this historical crisis. And she was really ambitious. She wanted to write this in five parts. She only completed two before she was killed at Auschwitz. But The manuscript was in a suitcase, and the suitcase survived and made it to her daughters, who found the manuscript many years later, and they assumed it was her journals. So for many years, they thought, we're not ready. We we can't, we cannot handle reading her journals. But eventually they decided, let's do this. And then they discovered what turned out to be these probably, I want to call them novellas, but it doesn't matter. They discovered this manuscript, and it wasn't what they expected, but they took it to a French publisher and... That is sweet, Frances. I have goosebumps. I know, right? I want to know the story of how the suitcase managed to survive. <laughs> That's, that alone is just mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. But the family bringing the story to light is just, oh, it's too good to not tell you about. Yes. I'm so glad it's on your shelf. I've, I've heard yeah, what you think. Definitely. Thank you. Okay. Have you read The Weight of Ink by Rachel Kaddish? No. That's another one I've heard of, but... Tell me about it. It is historical fiction. It goes back in time. It is not World War II. So our timelines are roughly now, I think it's actually the year 2000 and 17th century London when a manuscript is found in the stairwell. We're finding lots of manuscripts today. Yeah. So there's a manuscript. It's actually some very old letters inside the stairwell of an old house in, I believe, London. I know it's in England. And these letters are signed by an unknown rabbi. Obviously, this is of great historical interest. So the letters are handed over to the historians and they try and learn more about the letter's origins. And it becomes clear that these aren't just any letters, but there's something unusual going on. They may be a little secretive and subversive. And who is this rabbi? Because we've never heard of him before. And in this story, which really reminds me of A.S. Byatt's possession, and you'll see that all over the reviews, this idea is not unique to me. Um, in the way that these letters drive the story forward. So you go back and forth between the academics going, what is going on here? And the 1660s-ish setting where you see what's going on here. And each storyline really complements and comments upon the other. The interplay between the two is really interesting and engaging for the readers. And the characters are really, they're really well drawn and they just demand that you feel empathy for them. The unknown Jewish history in this story, the author said she learned so much about um, her heritage. That's something that was unknown to many readers. It's been a great source of satisfaction and enjoyment for readers who weren't 
terribly familiar with that history. And I would imagine if you do share that heritage or you do know something about that history, you will appreciate that on a different level. Kaddish's own family does have a history that will sound familiar. I'm apparently all about the personal connection today, but, yeah. but we know you like that from where did you go, Bernadette. But her mother's uh, family, they were refugees from the Holocaust. Oh, wow. So, She's done some interviews where she uh, tells about family conversations growing up, talking to her grandfather who could speak 12 languages. That was just how it was at the time. Um, she did this really fascinating essay on LitHub where she tells the story behind her book cover that I think you might appreciate. Oh, cool. How does The Weight of Ink sound? Uh, I'm sold. That's okay. on my list. I've written it down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. I was just going to say it reminded me a little bit of... Have you read anything of Lauren Belfer's, one of her books, And After the Fire? No. Reminded me a no, bit I don't of that. Know her name. Okay, she's been a, a role model for me um, and so, so kindly met with me um, when I was just setting off my publishing career. But she um, has many novels, and I've read this one called, it's called And After the Fire. I'm pretty sure there's an and. It also is. Um, a manuscript, this one musical, a musical manuscript discovered uh, actually at the end of World War II, but she tells it there's three storylines. One is the World War II, one is modern day, I think it's like 2010, and one is 1783, Germany, like long time ago. Insight into the two historical time frames, but also into, it, it, you follow this woman through her search uh, for understanding and where this manuscript came from and how it came to be and what it means for her. So anyways, your The Weight of Ink reminded me of that. So you, you should check it out. I think you would like that one. Thank you for that. Yeah. For your third book. Yes. Have you read any Kate Atkinson? No. And she's one that I just am dying to read. Well, I'm wondering about transcription. It's coming out this November, but let me tell you about it first. Okay. It's new historical fiction. It sticks to the World War II setting of her previous two books, Life After Life and A God in Ruins, but the characters are not interconnected in that way, um, and it stands on its own. It's set in 1940, and there's an 18-year-old girl. Her name is Juliet. She needs a job, and she shows up to be a typist and suddenly is in the world of espionage. She's not typing up what she expected to. And I really like this because I can't believe I'm comparing World War II historical fiction to Where'd You Go, Bernadette? But it has this really wry, droll British tone. But but I don't know. You like an underdog and characters you can root for. And an 18-year-old who is going to be trained to become a spy because she was kind of fell into the right place at the right time. Or actually, probably the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't know. I don't, you're, I don't know that you're really going to want to cheer for her. So something else I'm oh, also really? thinking of. <laughs> well, I mean, it's fun and it's interesting. I also love a strong female. I mean, it doesn't have to be a perfect female to cheer for her. Like, I love somebody who's just badass. <laughs> I love a really strong, confident, ahead of her time female protagonist as well. So it sounds like maybe that she fits the bill. Maybe. It's so interesting to me reading that I did read this at the pool this summer. When I think of a spy movie, 
or book, I think is something very mission impossible. Like it's all like glam and big lights and big moves. And of course, you know that you're waiting a lot in secret, but even that seems exciting. Mm -hmm. Juliet's voice She's just constantly mocking the people around her. Like, are you, this is the code. Are you serious? This is the catchphrase by which they're supposed to to know that it's me. But see, I love that. Definitely. Yeah. I have, um, I have life after life on my shelf and I, I've been meaning to read that one as well, but I am definitely going to keep an eye out. The transcription is not out yet. It's coming out. November, 2018. Okay. I can wait. And it's so different from life after life, which is also really fascinating. Life after life has highly unusual structure that readers either loved or thought, not for me, woman, why didn't you write this yeah. in a straight, like, why couldn't this have been a linear story? Right. I really enjoyed seeing the way she played with time and agency and fate and choice. And some people are like, just, can we just have one thing that happens instead of like a world of possibilities? I think that was advice I got from somebody who recommended, she's like, just kind of, you can't really read it when you're really tired and going to bed. Like you just kind of need to give it a little bit more of your, your energy or focus. And I remember thinking, well, that's really the only time I have to read these days. So I'm going to, well, I'm going to wait on it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I hear you. That is the one chunk of time I can count on as the hour before bed. Well, the hour, I mean, last night it was probably 15 minutes because it was a long day. Yeah. (laughs) Let's be real. Although I can totally see if you didn't know what you were getting into and you sat down to read Life After Life at the end of the day, you might think, I am too tired because there is no way what I think is happening is actually happening. But it really is. (laughs) That's great. All right. In that case, I will let that stand. Georgia, what do you think you'll read next? Okay. Sweet Front says, The Weight of Ink transcription. (gasps) Which one first? I'm I'm drawn to the Sweet Front says, probably first. And it's on your shelf. And it's on my shelf, so that makes it easy. So I'll probably start there. I can't wait to hear what you think. I'll let you know. Thank you so much. It's so fun to get recommendations from the expert. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Georgia today. And I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 157. That's 157. And it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. If you have a gigantic pile of unread books looming somewhere in your house, next week's guest totally gets you. Whitney Connard asked me to pick her next three reads off her giant to-be-read spreadsheet so she wouldn't be tempted to go buy even more books. Here's a sneak peek. It was just amazing to be able to walk into a thrift store, say, and be able to buy a book for $3 or to walk into Barnes and Noble and have everything at my fingertips. Whereas before I couldn't really access that stuff so easily. I just slowly accumulated a lot of books. And if it looked interesting, I would get it. I feel like there's this rationalization of, well, it's books. It's not like I'm wasting money on something frivolous. What is your number, Whitney? My number right now is 165. Okay, we will narrow this thing down. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support it, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or buy or borrow a copy of my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, for yourself or for a friend. 
Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Bekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!